0: After 30 minutes, this podcast episode will be substantially complete. This week, the city is served with a charter challenge about encampments as they talk more about community safety and well-being. Plus, the city confirms that
1: water is still wet and sprawl is still costing us a lot of money. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac.
0: And we are Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speak Municipally, episode 231. It is an unseasonably hot August. Uh, We've crested the 30 degrees. I believe yesterday, August 30th, was the hottest August 30th on record since time immemorial. I wonder what could be causing that, Troy. I just can't think of anything. Couldn't tell you, but uh, I know that to find out we should build a research park on the fringes of the cities and build road infrastructure surrounding it so that we can learn more about this problem. That sounds sensible, yeah. But we'll get to that in the whole host of sprawl challenges that the city of Edmonton dealt with this week. But the first item we want to talk about is related to sprawl, of course, and that's transit, which I don't know if you'll believe this. But city administration told committee this week that Edmonton's transit service does not match the level of demand for the system. Who knew? Who knew?
1: (laughs) Indeed. Well, the good thing about this report and the discussion this week at committee is that we actually have some numbers now for this. So across the entire service, administration estimates there's a gap of 260,000 service hours per year. And that, you know, despite our population increasing 15% from 2015 to 2022, and during that time, continuing to expand the roadway network, more roads... Transit service hours per capita decreased. And Troy, when I was reading the agendas about this item, I just thought to myself, so what they're saying is funding for transit has not kept pace with population. You know what would fix that? (laughs) A funding formula? A funding formula. If only we had a transit funding formula. Alas, we're not getting one of those. Uh, But council did discuss some options to try to address this. One of the ideas that administration had put forward was kind of interesting to me, which is this idea of repurposing the Valley Line Southeast LRT precursor buses. So the buses that are running, you know, along that route where the LRT will eventually maybe fingers crossed open one day and then take those buses and put them into other routes and and other service areas which would add about 70,000 hours, so it's still quite short of the gap, but it would be a good chunk, and it would only cost about $7.2 million, which seems reasonably affordable to me, given how much we spend on transit overall.
0: So this 260,000 service hours is one of those numbers where it's like you hear on the radio that it's the size of 17 football fields, and that's just <laughs> right. like not a useful number. Uh, so I did some back of the napkin math. If you assume that a bus runs like 18-ish hours a day, 360 days a year, that 260,000 hours equates to roughly 40 new buses, right? So in our fleet of around 600 buses running at peak, this is 40 new buses, which is substantial. Now, ETS obviously might not deploy it in the form of 40 new buses, but that's the ballpark of what this would mean. So it's material. It's not nothing. It's notable that committee didn't really make any moves to do quite anything about this, right? There's going to be some more information. There's going to be unfunded service packages. But I don't know about you, Mac, but I got the sense that this huge gap on Edmonton Transit, City Council doesn't endeavor to solve that anytime soon.
1: Well, they certainly don't feel a sense of urgency to solve that problem. So you're right. They passed two motions. One is to bring these unfunded service packages to the fall capital budget adjustment. So this would be for Um, a satellite transit garage facility and then also to purchase more buses to grow the fleet. So When you buy buses, you need a place to put them. So we build additional garages. So that's one of the things they'll consider uh, when they make adjustments to the budget. And then the second motion was a, a, a bus fleet replacement plan that identifies efficiencies that can be reinvested, which sounds a little bit like we already have to replace buses. Can we do it in a different way that allows us to save a tiny little bit of money so we can invest more in it? All of which is to say, you're right. It didn't sound like this is a really high priority item for them to fix.
0: All of this talk about replacement and saving money naturally with technology and the world going the way it is when you're talking about replacing a bus feet and you want to save money electric seems like a good way to go of course it's notable that the uh, provider from which we've purchased all of our electric buses is now filing for bankruptcy and Proterra probably won't be providing us with any more electric buses
1: no, it's not going to be that company. Uh, thankfully, Edmonton did receive all 60 buses we purchased from them before they went under. And so now the main concern is just about maintenance, right, and, uh, and parts and things like that. But ETS is there monitoring that situation and they're not, they didn't seem particularly concerned about that. But, you know, you're right. We'd probably wanna be looking at some of our other objectives here if we're gonna buy a whole bunch of new buses, including, you know, climate goals. So that could be electric, could be hydrogen as well. There's obviously a big push for hydrogen in the city and we're gonna start testing hydrogen buses pretty soon here if we haven't already. So that could be another place that uh, we see some movement. Though I'm not sure movement is really what we're gonna see on this file, despite it being all about transit. I'm not sure we're going to see approval for you know dozens of new buses and a new garage at the fall capital budget adjustment.
0: Well, and of course, we found that out pretty directly last week. I know Councillor Aaron Paquette spoke specifically to it on the police funding formula discussion. Crux of it is we're already going to be raising taxes to fund yes. this new police funding formula. Other departments at the City of Edmonton will experience freezes or cuts to account for that. We know that we have a pretty significant funding gap from where we need to be. And City Council even harped on that further this week. Uh, we heard some councillors say as much as half. Uh, we would need to perhaps double our revenue to truly give the service levels that Edmonton expects for garbage clearing, for transit service, for parks maintenance. And we were hearing that in a item about substantial completeness, uh, which is a sort of wonkish way of talking about reducing sprawl.
1: The substantial completion standard, as it's called, is also interesting to me because it's come to council and committee before. This is not the first time we've had this conversation. (laughs) So unlike the funding formula, here we are talking about substantial completion again with very few updates this week in terms of action and just a a decision that we're going to get another report back to committee before finally finalizing this thing in 2024. So it's one of those weird items that for whatever reason administration has decided this one's gonna to come to council several times with very little different between each time. The standard is about developing areas and, and making sure we build them out in a way that I think people would expect, right? In that. We go to a developing area of the city, we're going to add things like retail, parks, schools, libraries, etc., before we approve further development. So can we stop going around the edge of the city, please, and just build up in the areas that we've already got and make sure that there's amenities for them? That's really what this substantial completion standard is aimed at, trying to encourage or, you know, it's it's not quite a carrot, it's a little more of a stick, right? In this case, what what kind of tools can we put in place to ensure that we do develop those city, uh, those developing areas before we go to new
0: areas? Councillor Salvador put out a pretty exceptional blog post this week where she documented what we already know, that the downtown core subsidizes mostly the rest of the city in terms of tax base, that the new neighborhoods that we're building cost more in their lifetime than they bring in in tax revenue. And it highlights something that, Mac, I don't know if you remember, I ran for council back in 2017. It's a a dark time. We try not to think about it. But I remember when I was running and putting together platforms and everything, I was trawling through city documents, you know, doing research. And there's a report back from 2004 that basically says in black and white numbers, every new neighborhood we build Costs us more than it brings in. It was actively saying in 2004 the city of Edmonton budget is a Ponzi scheme. We build new residential neighborhoods in order to encourage new commercial developments to come to Edmonton. And it's just like an MLM, the new recruits are paying for the ones at the top until it all collapses. And we're seeing it get ever close to the collapse of the Ponzi scheme. And yet, We heard at council UDI was presenting the Urban Development Institute, and despite the House of Cards teetering and tottering, it seemed like, well, if you try to restrict sprawl, we'll just still sprawl in and around Edmonton anyway. So maybe don't.
1: The other thing about, you know, UDI's position is now they have affordability and the housing crisis, housing affordability crisis in our city and across the country to lean on to try to support. Their arguments that we shouldn't restrict growth and development in any way, right? So this idea that housing is limited, there's not enough housing to go around, it's increasingly expensive, it's going to get worse if we start restricting it. It's going to get make the, the housing affordability crisis so much worse for people if they can't buy a, a house on the edge of the city, completely ignoring all of the other impacts of that Decision and and also without a great deal of evidence to suggest that that is actually true, <laughs> and that the, the <laughs> problem behind housing affordability is a lack of sprawl. It's a bit of a tenuous argument, uh, but it does I think find more sympathetic ears when people hear, "Oh no, you can't you can't restrict growth because this is really going to affect." housing affordability. Uh, It makes for a little bit more of an interesting conversation, I guess you could say. To your point about this being a repeated and long known item, the previous iteration of the substantial completion standard was the growth coordination strategy. I remember writing about that in 2013, 2014. It said exactly the same thing with very clear charts showing the cost of the neighborhood over time and the amount of revenue that the city gets from it. And like in 2004, like today, New new neighborhoods do not pay for themselves.
0: I think the one thing I'll add on substantial completion is that this is slightly different than just the sprawl bad conversation. Because what I like about substantial completion is it's not saying that we are not going to sprawl out anymore in Edmonton. We've learned and we've heard from development comments at this council meeting that simply saying no to sprawl is not a winning argument. You can't do it. But with substantial completion, it's saying finish your dinner before you have dessert. You know, once you build out a residential neighborhood, until you complete the parks, the fire halls, the police stations, all of the connecting infrastructure, you can't build anything new, which I think functionally is a no sprawl because we know simply the number of brownfield sites in the city of Edmonton means we can develop for the next 70 to 80 years without a new inch of greenfield land. But it is presented in a more palatable way, though development didn't quite hear it as palatable this week. And because it is more palatable, it
1: will come to fruition. It's not a conversation about whether or not we should have this standard or not. I think it's the conversation's trending more toward How specifically is it going to work? What are the details in this thing? Uh, But it does seem very likely to me that this will become a thing next year in Edmonton in 2024.
0: Just like with the removal of parking minimums and some of our zoning bylaw changes, these are kind of generational changes. The amount of stuff that is already slated for development, ergo it won't be affected by this substantial completion standard, is far more than the average Edmontonian would think of. There are huge swaths of what average people would think is, quote unquote, greenfield, that is actually already planned for development and developers can still go ahead and build a bunch of single family homes on those those properties.
1: And you can't have exceptions without a rule, right? So we put the standard in place and then we'll have a whole bunch of exceptions to it. It's just a matter of time.
0: What was really fascinating this week, though, is the city of Edmonton is now being sued uh, for their response of clearing encampments and forcing people living in encampments to move on without providing adequate shelter space. And allegedly maybe,
1: you know, damaging or taking their belongings without uh, permission and that sort of thing. So this is the Coalition for Justice and Human Rights, which has filed a statement of claim in the Court of King's Bench. And they're alleging that the city's practice of clearing these encampments violates the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And this is inspired by you know, similar court cases that have taken place in Ontario and in British Columbia, and they're seeking an interim injunction to prevent the city from clearing more encampments when there aren't enough shelter beds for the people that that encampment clearing will ultimately displace. This is really new this week. We don't know a great deal of information about this. The city hasn't released a statement uh, about this lawsuit yet, uh, so there's much more to come on
0: this for sure. Of course, how we handle housing and homelessness in Edmonton, All is part and parcel with our community safety and well-being strategy, which is another one of those things that we always seem to hear about coming to council. Um, And once again, this week, it did come to Community and Public Services Committee, where city staff presented a report on the ongoing community safety and well-being strategy. And gave some updates on the current plans and some recommendations.
1: There wasn't a great deal of information here. This is just updates on the implementation of this strategy, recommendations on how to move forward with the plan. And what committee did was pass a motion with three recommendations. So this has to go to city council for for full approval. But the recommendations are to engage with the police commission to identify priorities with the upper levels of government, to engage with community organizations to do the same thing, and then to engage with funders. And I just wonder, Troy, how is that not already something that is happening? Why do we need a motion that says, work with the police commission to identify priorities around community safety and well-being so that we can go to
0: other levels of government and Seek funding. How many times during the police funding formula discussion was community safety and well being discussed? I think if it is news to the police service and the police commission that community safety and well being is a priority of this council, that's a problem.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So this is a very weird motion. And then there was a second one from Councillor Knack, which was also unanimously carried to have administration lead the development of a violence prevention action plan, which Sounds sensible to me. It's probably a gap in some of our implementation plans. We don't have something really concrete on there. He he um, requested, I think, that it have a little bit of a focus on youth in particular and violence prevention there. So hard to find fault with that. Though again, an implementation plan for this broad strategy that did have a lot
0: of input and has been worked on for quite some time. Doesn't seem to be moving very fast. Yeah, it's not quite running at the speed of innovation, but the city of Edmonton is hoping to get there. And I definitely saw Mayor Amarjit Sohi doing the Promises Made, Promises Kept tour. He had promised innovation and he had promised funding for the development of new businesses and uh, innovative businesses in the city of Edmonton. And the Edmonton Edge Fund, which we've talked about previously on the show, is finally really real and announced and running.
1: Yeah, there is now an Edmonton Edge Fund that is open for applications. You can submit an expression of interest uh, before September 18th. So it's a pretty short window of time, actually. In true City of Edmonton fashion, this is being called a pilot. And this first phase is the 2023 part. And, you know, Troy, to me, I had a couple of questions when I heard this news this last week, right? Why is it called a pilot? Well, Everything in Edmonton is a pilot, I suppose, but I think it might be because we're a little embarrassed that our fund for innovation is $5 million when Calgary's fund is $100 million and lots of other places have put in substantially more funding into their innovation funds. So that might be one of the reasons that it's called
0: a pilot. You know, it's a standard go-to move. If you say something embarrassing and cringe in public, say, oh, it's just joke. I was just joking. If you have a program that is substantially underfunded compared to your peers, oh, it's, it's just a pilot. I was just doing a pilot, bro. We're just learning. We're just testing things out here. And then the other thing that I was
1: curious about is what you pointed out, that the mayor has talked about this for a long time. It's even been called the Edge Fund for a long time. It's not a huge surprise that this thing was coming. But previously, it was described a little bit more as a venture Fund, right? That it would be a little bit more like the venture capital funds we often hear about in the news or certainly in the tech press, right? Where investors are putting their capital into innovative businesses. They're making a bet on a team or a product or service or something like that in the hopes that we're going to get, you know, substantial returns down the line from at least a small number of the investments that we make. That's not what this is. This is a grant program, full stop. There's two streams. You can apply for one or the other stream. You've got to align your outcomes with the four outcomes that they've decided are important uh, for the program. It's really not a venture fund. It's actually open to nonprofits as well. And I have nothing against that. I think it's important that we recognize that nonprofits do innovative things in our city. But this isn't the venture fund that we thought the mayor was talking about during the campaign, in my mind.
0: And I think it's important to think about the difference between venture capital and grant funding as it relates to a startup, because when you are a startup hitting the ground running and trying to get out a product, and you're really iterating to try and get your MVP out into public, a venture capitalist might see what you're doing and come forward and offer you funding, offer you growth for obviously a piece of the pie. A grant program, on the other hand, is you doing the critical business of trying to get your business off the ground. Now take days or weeks of your time filling out forms and government bureaucracy in order to get a bit of cash to then get back to the business that you've delayed for a couple of weeks in order to do this process. It's not quite aligned with startup culture and the idea of scaling up.
1: And don't miss the deadline because you only get two weeks, right? That's the other thing about this. Like, I don't know how many of the potential organizations in Edmonton that might be eligible for this are going to actually know about it with enough time to submit something. So I think that's a bit unfortunate.
0: I feel it's kind of a lot like uh, when I got my solar panel rebate this year. It's because I've been following the solar panels for, you know, two years. I've seen the program go in and out. And I knew when council had approved it and I knew that administration was about to launch it. So I told the provider at 9 a.m. they're going to announce it, be the first one in line. I had my ducks in a row, I was ready, and I had the cash ready to go to install it. I feel like this is a lot the same, where the only people that benefit from this are people who not necessarily needed it, but people who fortuitously are right time, right place, and are able to get it. I don't know that this would spur innovation insofar as just transfer some wealth from the city of Edmonton into hands of people who are already seemingly doing fine with the innovation.
1: And it does call into question some of the program's objectives or goals around inclusive innovation, right? To that point, exactly. If you're not somebody who's plugged in, if you're not somebody who's been following this for a while, if you don't have the capacity to down tools and go make an application, this funding's not really going to help you. And you continue to struggle then and face those barriers around funding that this
0: program is supposed to help try to address. Of course, in the innovation in the tech sector, many businesses fail. That's something that we expect. I think over half of all startups do end up failing. But if you go down 99th Street, I think you'll find that like a good half of all real estate businesses appear to be failing because 99th Street is one of these places between White Ave and the uh, top of Scona Hill that we expected to be a utopia, a main street, an area where people could congregate, and we had such high aspirations. And Mac, I live right near 99th Street. I walk and bike down 99th Street all the time. The amount of vacant building fronts, the pits that have developed where there once were businesses and community gathering spaces, it's staggering. And uh, CBC News did a bit of investigative reporting this week about why exactly that is. What happened to our great aspirations for 99th Street? Yeah, it's a really
1: great story that looks at that street. And, you know, I have uh, some really fond memories of that street myself, that stretch of road. One of my favorite places there is Route 99 Diner. Love going there. But it is a bit of a weird street to pin our hopes for a main street on because it is so car focused, right? There's still four lanes of traffic there. It's very busy during any kind of peak traffic time. It's not the most friendly thing to walk down. Sidewalks are pretty narrow, that kind of thing. But there are all these lots that are vacant. And in particular, CBC points out the lot at 89th Avenue. So it used to have a grocery store, hairdresser, Wild Earth Bakery, you know, had been a little bit of a community center for a really long time. Developer came along, demolished all of that. We're going to build this uh, luxury, mixed use luxury condo high rise. Could be a good thing for the area, right? Brings in a lot of residents. If it's mixed use, you've got some ground level retail, you know, the rent goes up compared to what people paid before, but maybe the trade-off is worth it. But alas, none of that came to pass. The 31-story tower never was built. And it's because they seem to have gone into receivership and uh, ran out of money. And now that property is up for a judicial sale for $4.4 million. So Troy, if you want to, you know, make some investments into that street, now's your chance. (laughs) Um, And it's, you know, that kind of thing that has happened, it sounds like, you know, along the street. There are some other places too where, people, you know, other previous tenants have vacated and buildings have been left empty. Belgian Developments has gone and purchased the former Catholic Social Services building once they moved and tried to consolidate some of their offices in other places. And they have plans for that. Belgian has a good reputation, I think, for this kind of thing around the city. So I'm encouraged and excited to see what they're able to do with that space. But, you know, it's just one place along this know, pretty long stretch of road that does have quite a few empty lots.
0: Well, and of course, one of my favorite bakeries in the area, Bonjour Bakery, used to be on 99th Street right beside the Vet. They now have a gorgeous new space on White Avenue. But the result of that, of course, is their storefront on 99th Street is now just a vacant building as well. I thought it was interesting in the story that it specifically called out that the project failed after it was scaled back twice due to community pushback and changing market conditions. Now, if we're talking about why this project failed, I think there was a little thing that happened in 2020 that did change market conditions quite substantially. So I don't think it's fair to say that NIMBYs killed this project. The condo market in Edmonton has been rapidly changing for the past half decade, um, and perhaps it was just no longer economical to build. But I will say that the NIMBYs did not help. And I think across the city, this is something that we're going to see more and more where community pushback, and this is why the zoning bylaw renewal is so important, community pushback to these structures and these buildings really increases the risk of something like this. So for someone who wants to go to the judicial sale and buy this $4.5 million lot does seem to be a pretty good value for that lot, but it does come with the caveat that it's has an entire community that is ready, willing, and able to rally to prevent you from doing anything with that lot. But when you do nothing with that lot, they will lament the pit that's there with nothing on it. Uh, It's it's a lose-lose situation for many developers, and it's something that we're going to have to reckon with in our core communities. Yeah, in this case,
1: the developer Bateman Properties, I think I said went into receivership. I'm not sure that's accurate, actually, but they did stop making payments on their uh, mortgage and the loan they had for this. So, you know, they definitely ran into financial trouble. Just as another example to what you're saying, you know, on my street, we've got the Fox Towers, right, on 104th Street downtown. And in this case, it wasn't community pushback that prevented the towers from going up, but it was community pushback that prevented the towers' main floors from having any occupants ever since they've been constructed. There was a proposal for you know, a bar and restaurant to go into the main floor on the corner of 104 and 102. And I was in favor of that. I think I went on the record of that uh, saying that. But lots of other folks were really opposed to it. And guess what? They're still empty. And yes, the pandemic didn't help. All of the the knock-on effects of the pandemic have made it very difficult. But, you know, that community pushback in this case probably scared off one of the most likely tenants we would have had in this space. It is a bit of a restaurant district. There are, you know, several patios and restaurants here, you know, in the summer and, and obviously in the winter indoors. So it's disappointing that it continues to remain empty.
0: If you were to think in downtown, the one place that shouldn't have empty storefronts, 104th Street is it, right? That is our downtown street, the main one, uh, because Jasper, of course, is like it is. We don't need to talk about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The other thing about 99th, back to the story that is uh, interesting to me, is is there's the Todd Cleaners uh, building that was shut down. There was some remediation that had to happen there. And it's still half empty, but the other half is supposed to be the Colombian. This is a coffee bar and roastery that has opened a number of locations across uh, the city. And, uh, and I'm excited about that. Santiago Lopez, who's the co-owner of the coffee shop, said that every place they've gone and opened has been in communities that need a gathering spot. You know, I think about the location that they have on Stony Plain Road near the Vise for Pies. Having a coffee shop in that location is just an excellent idea. And it's a really nice space because there wasn't anything around there where people lots of residents, but not like a coffee shop that people could go and, and congregate and at least not right close there. So that's an encouraging sign to me for 99. Street. I loved uh, the bakery there as well. The new location is great. But bakeries are places you go first thing in the morning to get your bread. They're not really places you're going to go hang out and have a coffee with some friends in the afternoon. So having more of those community gathering spaces, I think, could help be the start of something that changes along that street. I think about, for example, 104 Street, when it was a bunch of parking lots before all the condos and all the, you know, development, it was places like Blue Plate Diner, right, that served as that community kind of hangout that uh, you know, maybe sparked some something for that development to keep going in the right direction.
0: Yeah, of course, poor one out for Blue Plate Diner. Very sad uh, loss there. Uh, the other thing I'll mention about uh, what I'll call East White, which is that area from, you know, 99th Street to around 103 Street. It's long been the sort of like ugly version of white. Yeah, Uh, You know, the the, the cool section is west of uh, 103 all the way to the university. But I think what we've seen a lot with White Avenue is rising rents. And, you know, I'm thinking like the winners taking over that gathering space of the chapters. Yeah. When your marquee, new install of a business is a winner's, you know, your commercial retail strip is on the decline in terms of trendiness. I think we're seeing a lot of those trends move into West Ritchie and the East White Ave area. Tons of new innovative businesses popping up in and around those couple blocks. I think within the next 10 years, you're going to see a really trendy district pop up around there. You know, in the surrounding areas, you've got The Richie Market down on 76. You've got the springing up of Happy Beer Street, terrible name, but decent number of places along 99th Street, right in the middle of industrial areas, right? And I think we're seeing a natural sort of mingling of mixed uses that's really cool in around that area. So I'm excited to watch it again generationally over the next 10 years. But if I was to issue a prediction, I would say that, you know, within the next decade, East White might actually be the cooler area of White. Well, we'll be around to see if you're (laughs) right, Troy. (laughs) But before we end the podcast for this week, we've got to give you a little bit of a palate cleanser in the form of our rapid-fire segment. Edmonton Police Chief Dale McPhee
1: has announced, quote, enough is enough, signaling an end to the long-standing policy that enough is actually about five-eighths. Enough now joins in the ranks of things that are officially enough, which includes one term of John's Attic, hand spraying for
0: mosquitoes, and, at least in French... One egg. The Canadian National Pickleball League is coming to Edmonton, promising chaos on the courts, but chaos is also expected off the courts as well, as pickleball players, all a decade or two past when they should have had their driver's license revoked, blow through red lights, straddle and weave between lanes erratically, and fall asleep behind the wheel en route to the courts.
1: Edmonton City Council is currently recruiting for a new police commissioner. Assets for a successful candidate are an understanding of equity and structural racism as it pertains to policing and personal experience with diverse and marginalized communities. Counselors hope selecting a candidate with such a broad depth of experience and perspectives should allow the successful candidate to at least make it through half of their first police commission meeting before simply acquiescing to the service and rubber stamping every single one of their asks.
0: Speak Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton, and of course, Taproot Edmonton provides The Pulse. It's a way to stay informed about everything going on in your city every day, right in your inbox. The Pulse tells you what you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning, and you'll get short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall, plus coverage of business, tech, food, the arts, and more. And of course, if you want more in-depth details about any of those topics, you can subscribe to weekly roundups about each of them and learn even more from the in-depth reporters at Taproot Edmonton. Uh, You'll also get, in the pulse a little bit of whimsy from features like A Moment in History. You can check it out and subscribe at taprootedmonton.ca. I'm excited for The Pulse to come back.
1: As you may know, dear listener, we've been on our two-week summer publishing break, which is one of those things that we adopted, uh, inspired by other independent news publishers around North America, as a way to you know, keep the people that do the work sane. And uh, <laughs> summer seems like a good time to do that. But I've missed The Pulse myself in uh, my inbox every morning. So it comes back
0: September 5th. And this podcast will come back next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking speaking municipally. Municipally.